welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I speak with Marguerite Rigoglioso, author of The Mystery Tradition of Miraculous Conception, Mary and the Lineage of Virgin Births. We discuss the Immaculate Conception of Mary and the possibility that Mary was part of a tradition of Hebrew priestesses extending back to the matriarch Sarah, and how stories of miraculous births are foundational to the Hebrew tradition. Marguerite also discusses the value of exploring non-canonical texts and how her work restores agency to the figure of Mary. Dr. Marguerite Mary Rigoyozo is the foremost authority on the history of virgin birth and has taught graduate and undergraduate courses in both the United States and the United Kingdom. She is the director of her own esoteric school, Seven Sisters Mystery School, dedicated to restoring knowledge about the sacred feminine and to empowering people on their non-traditional spiritual journeys. Her research on female deities and women's religious leadership in the ancient Mediterranean world and beyond has appeared in anthologies and journals, including Feminist Theology, The Encyclopedia of Religion and Nature, Societies of Peace, She is Everywhere, Trivia, and the Journal of Feminist Studies and Religion, where her paper on the cult of Demeter and Persephone in Sicily received an honorable mention for the New Scholar Award. She is the author of The Cult of Divine Birth in Ancient Greece and Virgin Mother Goddesses of Antiquity. And her most recent book is The Mystery Tradition of Miraculous Conception, Mary and the Lineage of Virgin Birth, which is the topic of our conversation today. Marguerite, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you, Nick. I really appreciate the invitation to be here. Well, I'm very happy that you accepted it, and I'm very much looking forward to this um, conversation. So first, I wanted to congratulate you on your recent book, The Mystery Tradition of Miraculous Conception, Mary and the Lineage of Virgin Birth. Uh, I, I found it to be a very fascinating book. And you touched on a few topics that have puzzled me for a while. So I'm very much looking forward to our conversation. I th- thought that there were probably several places where we could begin uh, exploring your work, but I thought that maybe the best place to begin would be with the idea of the Immaculate Conception. Yeah. I think a lot of people may believe this just refers to the virgin birth of Jesus, but that's not true, is it? It also refers to Mary as having had a miraculous birth. Yes. And as a matter of fact, the feast day of the Immaculate Conception is technically about Mary's conception by her mother, Anne. Like you're saying, it's not Mary's conception of Jesus. The Immaculate Conception is Mary's being conceived into her mother's body. That's the technical, um, you know, religious, Christian um, wording for it okay so typically though people use immaculate conception to refer to mary's conception of jesus but it isn't that technically speaking 
I think that one of the things I want to sort of get out of the way at the very beginning is this whole idea of parthenogenesis. The, uh, you know, that's asexual reproduction. And this is something that is well-documented in several species, right? And, um, And I think that you're making the case that it is also something that is possible in mammals and humans. And I just wanted to know if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. You know, in my first book, The Cult of Divine Birth in Ancient Greece that you mentioned earlier, I have a whole chapter at the, at the end that says, is parthenogenesis possible or is divine birth possible? And, and I talk about um, various species that can reproduce asexually, especially under captivity. Mm. So every once in a while, people will send me over the years, you know, people have sent me uh, an article, oh, a shark, you know, gave divine birth or virgin birth under captivity, a snake, a Komodo dragon, you know, this, that. So it is possible, uh, even in animals that are normally considered to need the male and the female to come together. There has also been... Um, I mean, there are, there are certain actual species that, that do this on their own. They're, they're kind of rare and few and far between. But then scientifically, they, females of various species have been induced parthenogenetically, or in other words, virgin birth without a male sperm. Like sea urchins, um, I think there, there might have been um, experiments on rabbits and, and different other things. And then there was experimentation into mice. Mice eggs were induced to start dividing and create zygotes using um, chemical means. Usually it's electric shock or chemical means that can start this. And in one of the experiments, uh, Jerry Hall, who's this fertility researcher in the LA area was able to get these zygotes back into the mice mothers and have them start taking root and growing in the mice. And then at that point, and this must have been a couple of decades ago, um, the National Institutes of Health shut down the experiment because it started breaching supposedly medical ethics. So um, then there's the whole phenomenon of cloning. And there are many underground claims that there is human cloning going on Mm. um, in various countries, you know, under covert cover. And then if you get really deep and dark, um, it's said that this is actually regularly being used by governments of various countries, (laughs) you know, Mm. to produce um, these types of people, let's say. We, you know, those, those types of claims cannot be verified or have not been verified in the mainstream. But let's just say that cloning would be on par with all of this type of research. And that would be, you know, really when you think about it in vitro fertilization is, it's not so much parthenogenesis, but it's definitely 
noodling around <laughs> with the human egg, right? right? And, and there have been experiments, um, you know, can, can, they're always experimenting with eggs and sperm, right? To mm. kind of see what they can do, human, human eggs and sperm. And so if you were to search around, um, you would be able to find these types of experiments going on that I also, uh, it, shockingly, when I was doing this research, you know, back in the early 2000s, I saw an artificial womb that was being created with a four-legged um, animal. And I don't know if it was goats or whatever, but I still have these files. I mean, I printed stuff like this out and it, it sort of shocked me um, that they somewhere had gotten to the level of being able to create artificial wombs. So there's just a lot going on in terms of the medical exploration, the inducement of it. But of course, when I'm talking about divine birth, I'm talking about a high level spiritual practice of holy women that would go far beyond anything that could be medically induced in a lab where you're missing the ingredients of consciousness of the priestess to bring in a certain consciousness into her body. Thank you for that. In your book, you rely very heavily on an apocryphal text. I think the official name is the Proto-Evangelum of James, um, although, uh, and it's also known as the Emphasis Gospel of James, uh, though you write that the traditional and more accurate title would be Birth of Mary, Revelation of James, yes. which makes a lot of sense since the entire text is focused on Mary. And yes. it's only the last few lines that introduce the uh, identity of the author as James. Uh, so I, it's beyond me. Well, I, I do kind of understand why they would focus on James rather than Mary uh, patriarchy, <laughs> right? But I, I had a couple of questions about this. Uh, one, I very much appreciate the fact that you are relying on an apocryphal text. And I wanted to ask you, I imagine that most people listening understand what an apocryphal text is, but I was hoping that you could give a very short uh, explanation of what an apocryphal text is. Right. Start there. <laughs> These are the texts that the Roman Catholic Church rejected in its decision, um, its decisions in like the fourth and fifth century uh, maybe sixth century, you know, there were various councils and decrees, the Gelasian decree, or sometimes called the Galasian decree, um, made a list of texts of the day, and which ones were going to be considered official, part of the Bible, and which were going to be thrown aside. And the infancy gospel of James was thrown aside. And you could find commentary from various popes and things like that who said, oh, it's full of absurdities and, and this, that, and the other thing. So it's, it joins the grouping of um, texts that were not accepted in the official Christian Bible. Thank you for that. And just personally speaking, it's one of my soapboxes that I like to get on, especially when I'm teaching, is that if we really want to understand early Christianity, we have to look at these texts because they give us so much information. And 
even if they were considered not uh, official tax or um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Revelatory tax. That's not uh, quite the term I'm looking for. I don't think they were still influential. As you said, you know, this informed the Feast of Mary uh, holiday. Um, and was it, um, I, I, I think that there were other texts that it influenced as well. There's more than just this one apocryphal text that discusses Mary. Is that correct? Yes, there are, as it turns out, biographies about her. Um, there's one that is attributed to the so-called Maximus the Confessor, um, you know, the life of the Virgin, uh, right? There's, there's, there are various um, biographies that seem to rely in part on this text, but they also seem to rely on other texts that may have been lost, you know, so when you kind of start doing this exploration into what's been said about Mary, um, this is the territory that you get into. And therefore, it's particularly shocking to know that she's barely mentioned what, in what is now the Christian Bible. She's relegated to maybe two of the uh, Gospels, you know, the Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And hardly anything is said about her. You know, we have to go to these other texts to know what was being said at the time or, you know, in the couple of hundred years after her life about her. And right. OK. And, and this is, it, you know, this is not to mention the Gnostics, the so-called Gnostic Gospels and texts, which interestingly do not mention the Virgin Mary directly. Um, we do have a gospel of Mary, but it's, it seems to be about Mary Magdalene. And we have other mentions of Mary Magdalene and just a couple of little mentions of Mother Mary, like in the gospel of Philip and some, you know, like she was one of the three Marys who walked with Jesus, etc. So this is like, like you're saying, it's this whole world and it's this whole milieu of additional texts from which we get a lot of information. And to my mind, like, the real juicy, important stuff lies in these Gnostic, so-called Gnostic texts and these apocryphal gospels, which are a whole separate um, category. And these other biographies, which I don't know if they're considered apocryphal, probably they, that term would be used, but um, you know that's getting into like the finer points of the right. academic theological right. world, right? No, I just appreciated very much that you were bringing in these apocryphal texts, because like I said, I think that is so necessary to do, and it just opens up the exploration of this period of time. Yeah, um, it's so, where the real information is, yeah. <laughs> because it's clear that what is in the canonical gospel was edited. Mm -hmm and sanitized according to what was going to work for the by then established Roman Catholic Church right. uh, at the time of, you know, 600 AD. Mm -hmm. uh, what is the dating of the um, uh, uh, birth of Mary text? Um, okay. Well, academically speaking, it could be dated as early as 150 
AD of the Common Era. Some people date it later than that, but it could be right around that, which is technically older than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay. However, in the text itself, it said this James, this author, says that he is writing at the time of Herod and you know all of these various things that were going on. And if that is true, then he was an eyewitness to a lot of what happened in this text, uh, which is uh, basically what was going on around the conception and the fleeing of Mary and Joseph and the birth of Mary in the cave and uh, the birth of Jesus in the cave and so forth. So it could be dated to 4 BC, you know, which is basically considered to be the time of Jesus, which is strange because we think no, zero right. BC right, right. wouldn't. But no, it apparently 4 BC is the time more or less that that Jesus was born, right? Right. So it could be as old as that. Now there are all these arguments that come in that you know they start sifting through this and that and saying well it couldn't be that because of this that and the other thing ronald hawk in his book the infancy gospel of james and thomas i think um goes through some of that but when i read it nick you know i was like i'm not that worried about any of these arguments i'm not that convinced mm. i don't think these are big problems and therefore, I think that it could be an authentic text written at the time that it was said it was written. Mm -hmm. My understanding is you're not alone in that. I think the consensus is that it dates from sometime around the second century, but I do know that there is some disagreement in that. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a possibility. Yeah. Uh, definitely a possibility. So, um, I was wondering then, since we're talking about this, could you give a brief overview of this text of Mary, the, the, the infancy gospel of Mary uh, yeah. for uh, listeners who are not familiar with it. Right. So what this does is it opens talking about a character that we really don't know, two characters that we really don't know from traditional Christianity, according to the canonical Bible, um, namely Anne, Anna, or originally named Hannah, and her husband or consort, Joachim. And it talks about the, the travails they've been going through with her not getting pregnant, and it leads into the actual pregnancy of Mary by Anne through miraculous means. It leads us through Mary's infancy, and then it leads us through her toddlerhood. Then it leads us to how she is given over to the temple, the, the Hebrew temple at age three, tells us a little bit about what happened when she was raised in that temple. And then it talks about how she kind of gets ejected from the temple, supposedly at least by this later, probably redacted version, this edited version, talks to us about we're hearing little children. Yes. <laughs> then it picks up where she's given over uh, from the temple because she is now 12 years old, presumably menstruating and considered, quote, unclean. And by divination, she's given to she's given over to this elder widow named Joseph. 
to be kind of caretaken. This is the period when she becomes pregnant. We hear all about that and why and how um, it's, it emerges out of a ritual that she was invited to participate in. And then it talks to us about travails she had while she was pregnant, after she gave birth. And it finally concludes with, uh, you know, she and Joseph and Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, and her concert, Zechariah, being under uh, pursuit, you know, by the Roman Empire, because the, you know, the, the Caesar um, at the time, it, no, Herod, it's Herod, who is very nervous about the idea that these are divinely born children. He gets wind of it from soothsayers. And it ends with the murder of Elizabeth's consort, Zechariah, for not revealing the whereabouts of her son, John. This is a backstory that we don't hear about in the Bible, and it's been criticized as being made up backstory. But the fact is that it's so compelling and mystical, and the details in it correspond so beautifully with all of the research that I did about divine birth, the signs and the symbols, that I found it to be incredibly authentic because of those correspondences. And nobody but a seriously mystical writer who was privy to women's mysteries and uh, details thereof could have, could have written this. It, it does seem to me a very, very authentic document. One of the things that really interested me is this claim that Mary is part of a lineage of divine births. And you take this all the way back to the matriarch, Sarah. Uh, and I, I think that most people know the story of how Sarah, who the Bible tells us was 90 years old and no longer with the manner of women is what it says. Uh, that's when she conceived her son, Isaac. And but yet she's not the only uh, woman to experience a sort of miraculous birth in the book of Genesis, you know, Isaac and Rebecca uh, and Jacob and Rachel. Uh, and even beyond this, you know, sticking with the uh, sort of biblical and extra biblical text, you know, you mentioned the Gnostics. I know there are some Gnostic texts of Pista Sophia uh, giving birth on her own. And, you know, this idea of miraculous birth seems to be fundamental to the biblical tradition. Yeah. Hello. Right. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it was not made up or begun with Mary. This goes back to Hebrew women, you know, from, from a dating that we, we can't even pin down. When did Sarah and, and, and Abraham live? And there is the, um, the ancient Jewish writer. Um, it's not Josephus. It's, it's the other one. Um, and his name's going to come to me. I don't know why I always blank out on his name. But he writes 
all about the Essenes. And he writes about basically that these women, all, all of whom you mentioned, and he adds Zipporah, the wife of Moses, mm. as be being essentially virgin birth priestesses, essentially. Mm. Okay. And it's truly astounding, you know, and, and if I had really wanted to, I could have gone into Rachel and Leah. I didn't, mm -hmm. you know, I just right. stuck kind of with Sarah, but that would be something for another scholar to really mm -hmm. look at and make some correspondences, you know, who were these women? So this is firmly in the Hebrew tradition. And what I say is it's not just about these poor, hapless, barren women who are old now, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. right. it's, it's something else. Mm -hmm. It's about women who were trying their whole lives to have a divine conception. And because of how they worked with their bodies, they were able to do it into what we consider older age, or even like a postmenopausal type of age. And it was a practice, you know, and I talk extensively in the book, as you saw about Sarah, and I really build on the work of, as, of Savina Tuval in her book, Sarah, the Priestess. It was, it's an excellent book. And she gets this close to saying and showing that Sarah was a divine birth priestess. And I take it the rest of the way. Tuval is no longer with us. She's passed to the realm of the ancestors. So I couldn't have our conversation with her about that, but it's truly stunning who she reveals Sarah was. Mm. And, you know, she was just no ordinary woman. I mean, she was truly a high priestess. So this is telling us that there was a practice that was going on that these women knew how to do and they knew how to pass it on. And what we see in the the birth of mary gospel that we're talking about now the infancy gospel of james is that anne refers back to sarah when she goes into her altered state conception experience and we also hear in there that she brings in these virgins of the temple to condition mary even when she's an infant and a toddler in Anne's growing up in, in Anne's sacred bedroom. So there is a tradition of virgins who are all a part of this. These are priestesshoods, right? Virgins who know what they're doing. And then these are probably the same virgins that continue to teach and raise Mary to be a divine birth priestess from the time she's three until about the time she's 12 in the temple. And then as though that's not enough, what we hear is that Elizabeth, who we know from the canonical gospel is a relative of Mary. She's supposedly a cousin, but what I find in the Islamic tradition, lo and behold, the Quran says that actually Elizabeth was Anne's sister. Hmm. This blew my mind. Yeah. Elizabeth, who becomes virgin birth pregnant with John the Baptist is Anne's sister. So this is talking about family lines of this, right? Mm -hmm. And it seems that Elizabeth, through these various 
things that I suss out in this gospel, Elizabeth conceived in this John in the same ritual that Mary conceived Jesus. There were eight women working together, almost like a spinning wheel. Hmm, very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And that spinning wheel and this idea of weaving is a theme that you pick up in the book as well. It's huge. I mean, the veil for what's going on with this virgin birth conception technology is literally the veil of the temple. Okay. So they veil this, like I should have, I wish I had thought of this when I was writing the book. James, the author, veils what's going on by literally describing the veil of the temple and saying that's what these women were doing. They were mm -hmm. weaving the temple veil, which in and of itself was a whole huge remarkable thing that I discuss um, mm -hmm. in, in detail uh, in this book. It was this huge endeavor. The temple veil, it would be the veil that would uh, divide the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. It would be thick like mm -hmm. this huge. It took literally more than a hundred people to carry it. You can imagine. And it was, it would always have the signs of the universe on it, the astrological signs. I mean, it was like a, an amazing thing. So this is the veil or the overlay, um, that we are being told to, to conceal the details of the actual conception ritual uh, by the author saying that these eight women were weaving the temple veil. And we know that it took way more than eight women to weave these veils. I mean, there were personnel that lived in the temple, virgins who would do this, literally probably hundreds of them, okay? So to say that it was eight is like our clue that it's not just the weaving of the temple veil that's happening here. It's the weaving of something else, which is DNA. And um, so through a very intricate ritual, and I'm able to tease out all of these other hints that James gives us because I'm able to cross-reference it with all of the research that I did in ancient Greece to show, wow, Weaving means this, um, you know, this symbol means that the women at the well means that the women, the women using the vessel means that right okay kind of piecing out what actually happened, what Mary and the others actually did so that she could conceive Jesus in her womb, and then Elizabeth could conceive John. In her womb. I have several things I want to, several threads I want to pull here, uh, <laughs> if you will. Uh, but one, I think the the immediate thought that comes to mind is the, the I, this connection with Mary and the veil and weaving the veil. And it seems to me that that gives a very different or can give a very different reading to, I think it's uh, the gospel of John, when Jesus is crucified, we're told that the veil tears down the middle. Wow. I'm just going to, I just have to sit with that for a minute because yes, you're right. And I just want to tune in here for a second on that one. Yeah. I mean, that reference, I mean, people know how tremendous that reference is who, who are tuned into the idea that 
that Jesus was a very high level being who walked the planet and that Mary was a high level being who walked the planet and the whole Holy family was. So the tearing of the veil is really like the ripping of the time space continuum and the alteration of a timeline that should have gone a different way, but ended up going the way of the adversaries and the archons, okay, who really grabbed what was going on with Jesus and turned it into a tragedy um, that they had to make lemonade out of. They, they're like, all right, well, we're going to have to do ascension through the tragedy way now. We had really come to do it a different way. But that rending of the veil does refer back to the womb. And it refers back to like the disruption of the women's plan. And the, the, it's almost equivalent of like the nuclear bomb splitting uh, the atom. You know what I mean? Like it's that level of esoteric shenanigans mm. that is being, dis and, and tra this travesty that's being described. And the interesting thing about it is that the late Hindu saint, Sri Kaleshwar, who brought forth a lot of esoteric information about Mary and Jesus, the divine conception, as well as what happened at the crucifixion, both by accessing the ancient palm leaf manuscripts, literally writings made by ancient sages on plagues, as well as his own past life recall. He said that Mary resurrected Jesus through her womb, hmm. through a very high level yoga, they were doing several yogas together to um, make this thing happen. Okay, they were, they were such high advanced people that they could do this. But it is, so it is referring to the womb, that tearing of the veil is referring to the womb. But, you know, according to Kaleshwar, all was not lost. The, everything was resurrected, you know, through this womb, the womb gave birth to Jesus and took him back and resurrected him on whatever level he was resurrected, whether it's off planet or whether Sri Kaleshwar said that he had a timeline in India. So, um, yeah, I think that's profound, Nick, and thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, well, of course. And, you know, just the, the way that you describe the veil, uh, what's on it is this depiction of the universe of sorts. And so it's what you were just saying is that tearing of the veil in a very, you know, just the symbolism of it is the tearing of the universe. Yeah, the tearing of the universe, which is what the nuclear bomb does. Yeah, yeah. And then it creates portals through which negative beings can come in to various realities, which is what has happened on the planet. Yeah, that was uh, uh, just my geekiness. Uh, that was uh, David Lynch's uh, Twin Peaks, The Return. That's what he had uh, in there. Oh, did was, he really? Yeah, it was the, um, uh, the atomic blast uh, tore open these portals, which allowed these sort of uh, demonic beings of sorts to That's come right. into the world and um, well, create more suffering. 
Well, that's disclosure, basically. Yeah. That's disclosure right there, which a lot of films and filmmakers do um, because it, it, it rips the time-space continuum, which is, is a travesty. It's something that should not yeah. be done. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, this is going to bring me in a weird way to my next question. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to refer to this, uh, uh, this third season of Twin Peaks, because the episode that shows this, it's uh, episode eight and he shot it in black and white and it's just phenomenal. And there's this scene towards the end where you see this figure kind of coming down out of the sky and he goes into a radio station and he takes over the airwaves and he is just repeating this phrase over and over and over. And the beginning of this almost poem that he keeps reciting is this is the water. This is the well descend and drink deep. Um, and so that, <laughs> um, I think leads into this other question. And it's something that I wanted to ask you about because it has always puzzled me that in the biblical text, there is this theme that's repeated of figures being at a well. Uh, so we have uh, Isaac meets Rebecca by the spring of water. He's at the well. Jacob meets Rachel by the well. When Moses flees to Midian after having killed the Egyptian, you know, he's found by the priest of Midian and the priest's seven daughters while he's sitting by a well. And I believe in the myth of Demeter and Persephone, uh, Demeter also stops by a well. And uh, I think that in the myth of Isis, at least the one told by Plutarch, she also is a well features deep. Um, Now, I always read this as water being a source of life or an archetypal font of spirit, if you will. But I was wondering if you could explore how you're reading the symbolism of being at the well. Yes, and I talk about that extensively in one of the parts of the book, because several of the things that you mentioned all have to do with women who give divine birth. So the Rachel, uh, you, you know, the Isaac and Rachel story, and then the Demeter and Persephone. Demeter stops at a well, and who does she encounter? The daughters of Metanera. And in my book, Virgin Mother Goddesses of Antiquity, I talk extensively about these daughters of Metanera as being divine birth priestesses who were intimately associated with the original Eleusinian mysteries ritual, which had a strong divine birth component, an actual ritual act that that took place uh, between that was a you know a parthenogenetic um, conception right by the high priestess, and so. What you find in the infancy gospel of James or the birth of Mary, not only is Mary weaving at the time of the conception of Jesus, and it describes, you know, that she now she's spinning, now Mm. she's um, pulling back and forth. You know, it's like Mm. these are all metaphors for the technology that she's using and, and her own altered inner state. But then we find that she's at a well in the middle of this ritual. She goes to the well. It's either the lather 
of the actual temple, the Hebrew temple. One of the, one of the scholars thinks that Mary was not in Joseph's house when this happened. Originally, before this was edited, she was at the temple doing this ritual, and it would be at the lather or the well that the voice of the angel comes to her to, to guide her in this ritual and tell her, yes, you're doing it right, you're going to be conceiving, da, da, da. And so um, I talk about the well as basically the symbol of the women's womb. Mm. Okay. It's the earth womb. It's the font of life, the source of life as a womb. And therefore it is the place where womb like things happen like conceptions and so forth. And who knows who those seven daughters are of the yeah. particular person. If we went into that, we'd probably find something about them. Right. Yeah. Um, and so Mary is drinking from the well, she's carrying her, the vessel. So I talk about how the vessel is a representation of her womb. So all of these things are just more fodder for helping us understand that this is a divine conception ritual in the womb. I think that I wanted to kind of dig in a little bit in terms of the still in the history, because in the infancy gospel, Mary is living in the temple. And you make the claim that, you know, there is this priestesshood in the temple, but there's a lot of evidence that supports that, uh, historically speaking. And uh, I was just wondering if maybe you could address that a little bit, because, uh, and I know, I hope it isn't getting us too far away from uh, anything, but uh, there was this tradition in the ancient world uh, of uh, a uh, priestesshood of sacred sexuality. And I, uh, I've seen different variations of the word. Um, I, I knew it as Kadishtu, which is usually translated as temple prostitute. Yeah. Um, uh, but there was also a sacred marriage rite. And I know that you bring this up in the book. Um, so I was just wondering if you could go into this a little bit yeah, uh, and how I, it applies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it's not beside the point at all. In fact, it is the very point that we really need to look at in order to validate the idea that Mary was associated with the temple. She was a virgin there, that there were other virgins there, that there was a whole bunch of stuff that these women were doing, et cetera. And it's something that often gets dismissed um, by, you know, theologians in the Hebrew tradition or whatever. But when you dig into it, you find out in the very Genesis, you know, it's talking about these temple virgins. Half the time they were weavers who were virgins and then in some of the material in the Hebrew Bible, not just Genesis, but, you know, well beyond in the other books, Kings, I'm not exactly remembering. They were considered part of the class of these women who would engage in sacred sexual relations. So they were both weavers and sex worker priestesses. Hmm. And this is right in the Hebrew temple. 
let alone there seems to be some evidence of this going on in the ancient Greek world as well, which of course scholars, I mean, I've just seen it go on for years. They just completely shut it down and they dismiss it. And it's, I, it's totally frustrating, you know, to, to hear this kind of um, automatic response to this idea. But yes, something was going on. And we also know that there are numbers of references in the Hebrew Bible to the, the Kadeshu, the, the, you know, the, the, that these women um, were basically sacred sex workers. And this was being decried um, by, you know, uh, commentary, you know, people giving commentary within some of these, uh, you know, these books of the Bible saying, well, you know, this is going on, it shouldn't be going on, you don't want your daughters to be like these Kadesh to, you know, blah, 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 blah. So I write all about that in the book, if people want to tease out and detail it. But yeah, there was stuff going on in the Hebrew temples. And this was the very type of thing that then, and, um, you know, these leaders would come in and smash, you know, the idols, smash, you know, the, the, the temple, carry these women out and rape them, whatever, right? We can see even within the Bible itself, the transition being described. In doing so, the Bible is admitting that this stuff went on. Mm-hmm. So it is really all right there. I don't see it as being too horribly controversial. You know, the way that I typically teach the Hebrew Bible is that, you know, it's, it, it, it's showing this tension in a way between polytheism and monotheism. Hey. And the Israelites, you know, we know the Israelites were Canaanites. We know that the Israelites were Canaanite. They shared a culture. They shared a root language. They even shared DNA. And um, you make a connection with Anat, uh, who is the Canaanite goddess. Um, And as you mentioned, the biblical text does show a lot of this, like two kings. That's Josiah's reform, where uh, they allegedly discover (laughs) the book of Deuteronomy. And that's when they cleanse the temple. And it specifically says that the, um, the the temple prostitutes were forcibly removed as were the images of the goddess. That's right. You You see, it's more than just a clash of polytheism and monotheism. Mm -hmm. It's a clash of female goddess veneration and priestesshood and male uh, God worship and take over by the male clergy. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, and I think that the archaeology and a lot of the recent work uh, really supports that. Bless um, it be. You know, the uh, more and more, I think uh, much of the Hebrew Bible, especially the Deuteronomic history is seen as being just polemical. And yeah. it is a, an attempt to centralize power and take control. That's right. It is yeah. polemical. It's not really a religious spiritual document. It's kind of more um, a controlled history. Mm-hmm. 
of what these later clergy wanted people to believe and think. Right. About was, their history and about reality itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was never, I, I don't think that it was very successful. Uh, you know, I know that Ezekiel, who's writing at the time of the Babylonian invasion into Jerusalem, yeah. he mentions the women weeping for Tammuz in the temple. And Tammuz was the consort to Ishtar. That's right. right. Um, And it always puzzled me. And this is one of the other reasons why I enjoyed reading your book is the what we are often told was that after the return from the exile in Babylon, Judaism at that point was radically monotheistic. And I always, it always puzzled me uh, as to how that could have happened. And I was always thinking, I don't think that it went away. I don't think the goddess went away. I don't think the polytheism went away. No. And I've often thought about Christianity as being how that manifested. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean... Yeah, I think Judaism stayed polytheistic and goddess worshiping for quite some time. You know, it was neck and neck, right, with with all of that um, programming that was going on for for focusing on one male jealous god and a male clergy, whereas there was a, a priestesshood and goddess worship going on at the same time. And then somebody like Bernadette Bruton um, shows that some of these priestesses may have been leading the temples themselves in, in that early period itself. So, you know, all these things get, get rewritten and it's just so maddening, but these little shards of what it was poke through and you can tune into it, which is what we're doing here, which is what you've been doing and what in, in the kind of analysis that you're talking about. One of the things that I also wanted to uh, bring up is that I think that I think that you're doing something very important with this in the sense that I think that there has always been this very patriarchal attitude uh, with Mary's conception of Jesus. And, you know, in the biblical text, she's this passive vessel and the emphasis is on virginity. And I think that this has been used negatively, um, to suppress women's sexuality. And I found it so fascinating that I think that you were able to give Mary her agency back. Yeah. That's what I'm doing. And, and that's really important at, the, at this time in, in earth history and in this day and age, because her virginity was an integral part. It was a necessary component to accomplish the technology of divine birth in the way that she wanted to and needed to, which was at a very high level. But that virginity aspect then came to be used to 
be applied as the measure for all women, mm. that all women needed to be virgins. And they don't. They only need to be virgins if they are in method of dedication in the priestesshoods, and specifically if they are supporting or attempting to do divine birth. Virginity is a necessary biophysical spiritual condition for it because the womb is uh, free of any other energy or karma that comes in when a human male comes into the womb. So a free and sovereign womb of a very, very high holy woman who is already an incarnate of the divine by virtue of her divine birth from her mother, um, she can really go to town then with bringing in this very high holy being. So it's like this was a, a familial plan you know, to, to adjust things so that Jesus could actually come in through a human, um, a human conception. So virginity is not something that is meant to control women. And it is not an attribute that means that Mary was devoid of erotic power. On the contrary, all of her erotic power was generated from within and toward the within so that she could conceive the way the goddess of the universe makes everything. She becomes one with the goddess of the universe with mother divine, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, I'm beginning in this book to elevate Mary to her true stature as the highest advanced human holy woman who ever walked on the planet, okay? And um, this puts her in a whole new light and therefore it is able to put women in a whole new light. Because when we see what was possible for Mary, that she was not a passive victim or a let it be done according to thy will, you know, kind of receptacle, you know, when we restore her to the consciousness and power that she had and the various other powers that she had, which is something I'm going to be writing about in my next book on Mary, this opens the door to possibilities of how human women can be on the planet themselves. We see Mary as a role model of far more than just being virginal, obedient, young, and passive. We come into the full flowering of what women can be, how they can be on the planet, how they can be bringing their tremendous womb powers to the healing and the rectification of this world. It's very powerful. Um, so thank you for that. And thank you for the work you're doing. I, I really appreciate oh, it. Um, thank you. Uh, one of the questions I have uh, in regards to all of this uh, that just came to me as I was listening to you, uh, you mentioned the Quran quite a bit uh, in, in uh, your book. And I don't know how many people are familiar with the fact that Mary appears in the Quran way more than she ever appears in the New Testament. Yeah. And 
this image that you are bringing forth of Mary, you know, on one hand, I want to ask, well, how is this going to affect, you know, Christianity and Judaism? But I'm also really interested on how this might shift attitudes in Islam. Right. Yeah. I mean, Mary is mentioned a number of times in Islam. There, there is even something of a chapter of the Quran written about her, um, which is interesting because, and there is material written, not a ton, but a, written about her mother, Anne, who never appears anywhere in the canonical gospels mm -hmm. of Christianity and uh, Yoahim, her partner. So it's like the Muslims had the connection to these people. They understood who these people were. They were, they were basing it on an older tradition that got erased in traditional Christianity, and they had no reason to erase this material. So there it all is. Hmm. And um, so I want to get, I want to like focus on the nut of your question, maybe you can just rephrase it so that I can, because <laughs> you were talking about the implications. Well, yeah, yeah. well, I was just um, thinking of, you know, Islam, you know, none of the, none of the traditions are especially great when it comes to women. You know, that's one of the things that almost all of the world religious traditions get wrong is women. And what I'm finding is, you know, you are giving Mary her agency back. And I'm just curious how that might reverberate. Um, right, right. Uh, within the other traditions, but I was also thinking in terms of Islam. Right. Um, yeah. Right. Well, you know, what, what is said about her in Islam is not the analysis that I'm giving in the book. Right, right, <laughs> you know right. what I mean? It's still a little bit yeah. got her a little bit under veils and, and mm -hmm. things. But um, I think that as this information seeps into the public consciousness, whatever religion you are or not, you know, agnostic, atheistic, it makes you take a second look mm -hmm. at Mary, at the meaning of divine birth, the role of virginity, the history that surrounds Mary, the female personnel that might have been connected with her, and again, including her mother and her aunt, and the level of power of these women something of which has been edited out, diminished, erased, distorted, twisted, you know. So I really think that the revelations of this book are potentially far reaching whenever it is that they come to capture the mass consciousness. Like right now, it's this information is, you know, and Back in, you know, when, uh, 2008, when my dissertation came out, 2009 and 10, when my books came out about Greece, I already was starting to teach about Mary and people, uh, you know, in various seminars that I would do related to these books. 
And so the people who were flocking to it were really the high level esoteric women and some men uh, who considered themselves part of the global priestesshood. Now, over the years, then it's extended, you know, to women and and some men who not do not necessarily consider them part of the global clergy or priestesshood or, or holy woman cadre, but they are finding great meaning in this. You know, these are these are like a lot of the people who have been turned on to the whole new idea of Mary Magdalene that we can justify through looking at the shards in these books. So we're at the stage now with Mother Mary, where we were with Mary Magdalene 10, 20, and 30 years ago when that material first started coming out. And that has started catching on like wildfire in, you know, in a slow wildfire over 30 years. And now it's kind of much more common knowledge. And, uh, you know, Megan Watterson just had her book about Mary Magdalene revealed and right. So this is kind of more the beginning of the Mother Mary wildfire, so to speak. And we'll have to see where it goes. I trust in the divine timing of it. Because sometimes when things are too much too soon, they get the wrong kind of attention. And then you're dealing with all the people and the energies who don't want this information out there. Right now, it's still a little bit under the radar -y. <laughs> you know, as far as I can tell. Um, and that's fine. It will, it will have its own awakening with people in its own timing that will hopefully benefit everyone and humanity in a big way. And that could happen very quickly, or it could take a while. And it doesn't matter. You know, in a way, I think it will also encourage people who left Christianity, uh, because they thought it had absurd claims and, and so forth and so on, to look back at it and say, well, gee, what is here for me? This sounds really esoteric and mystical. Maybe I should be looking at this in a new way. And that can lead them to the mystical Mary, the mystical Jesus, the sacred heart, the advent of the love energy on the planet, which is the only healing force something that we need so deeply and desperately today, right? As we're going through this cataclysm of gargantuan global proportions. Yes, uh, agreed. And again, very beautifully stated. Um, I, I know we're getting close to the end of our time. Uh, I do have a couple of more questions for you. Uh, yes. maybe, maybe these are a little bit technical, uh, but I'm curious uh, in your research, did, have you looked at any of the um, uh, pseudepigraphic texts? Yes, um, various of them, not sure they're technically considered part of that category. I mean, would you consider the test the testament of the twelve patriarchs to be part of that? Do you, do you are you familiar Maybe. with that? At all? I'm not. Um, okay, because yeah. there's material that I look at in the book from that. Okay. Um, I wasn't. I don't think I went through the book of Enoch. Yeah, uh, I don't think there's anything in Enoch that would apply. Yeah, but I was just. I guess I was there, curious. There's, there's other. There's other. Um, the Midrash books mm -hmm. and, right. and so forth and so on. You know, there are other Hebrew books mm -hmm. 
that I do have references to in here. Mm-hmm. And so whether it's part of this category that you're talking about or not, I'm just not sure because that wasn't yeah. part of my study and expertise, yeah. but okay. yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot of those um, alternative or outside of the canon types mm-hmm. of uh, documents in the Hebrew tradition that are very interesting. Yeah. 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 So that's why I was just curious if uh, you had looked and if there, if you had, if there was anything found there, because there's just so much there. Yeah. Um, uh, I think most of it is prophetic and probably apocalyptic. Uh, But I would imagine that there may be some information in terms of like Sophia um, and the Sophia tradition within that. So uh, another question I had, uh, oh, and incidentally, on this lines, the the writer, the the mystical Jewish writer I was talking about is Philo. Oh, he's the yes. one who talks about the founding mothers of the Hebrew mm-hmm. tradition as essentially being virgin birth priestesses, and he's the one who talks a lot about the history of. Uh, he describes the Essenes, well, the Therapeutae in particular, mm-hmm. and what they were all about. And so I discern that, you know, Anne and her group may have been part of the Therapeutae. And many others have said that these people may have been part of the Essenes mm. as well, larger, largely speaking. And we don't know if, um, because somebody said to me, well, when you talk about Mary having gone into the temple, do you mean like the traditional Hebrew temple or the Essene temple? And I was like, well, I don't really know enough about it. And I, it would be fascinating to see if there is a body of history to suggest that there were Essene temples. I mean, I know that the Essenes worked largely kind of on their own in these little cells and these communities right. and so forth. So I don't know to what degree they had larger, more established types of things of the nature yeah. of like the traditional Hebrew temple. Yeah, I don't know that they had a temple. Like you said, uh-huh. my understanding was always that they had removed themselves yeah. from Jerusalem uh, in large part because they were so sort of disgruntled with the management uh, and activities in the temple. Yeah, um, and, and they were more communal mm-hmm. and just closer to the earth. And yeah, they weren't part of all that. So I don't know, but it was kind of an interesting question, don't you think? Like, Yeah. Uh, You know, where I would probably look would be the, uh, I think there is a temple though in Elephantine. Oh. Uh, Because one of the arguments is that it was at the time of the um, Babylonian conquest, you know, where the Jews were dispersed, you know, some of them, you know, the leaders were moved to Babylon, but many of them were dispersed, that a community uh, ended up in Africa in Elephantine. Um, uh-huh. And there's, there's also a, um, a, a theory, uh, I don't know how much merit there is to it, but there is a theory that the Elephantine Temple is where the Ark of the Covenant is. Oh, wow. Um, uh, so I know people have made, you know, I don't know the veracity of that. Wow, um, that's fascinating. But it could be, you know, looking at traditions and any writings at Elephantine might you might be able to excavate some more information. Uh, oh, about yeah. This I mean, tradition. Wow. 
stuff like that. Yeah, that that's so interesting to explore because you can you can just uncover so much that that's right there, mm -hmm. but has not been given much attention. Right. Um, you know, or even creeks. Um, there's also the Mishnah. Mm -hmm. um, what would that what would what kind of a category would that come in? Um, do, are you are you familiar with what I'm talking about? Because I, I have several references to that. Uh, I just know the Mishnah as the oral tradition. Okay. And the that was eventually written down. Yeah. Um, I yeah, so I have a few references to that. So it's like that extra biblical, mm -hmm. you know, material. Yeah. Well, and that's also yeah. worthy of looking at, you know, the Mishnah, yeah. the Talmud and the yeah. apocryphal text, the pseudepigraphic text. Yeah. You know, that's what makes all of this so absolutely fascinating. And yeah. I think open for exploration. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I mean, it, it's sort of amazing that more attention had not been given to the infancy gospel of James or birth mm -hmm. of Mary, aside from these sort of dreary analyses that just mm -hmm. kind of recycle, you right. know, the same information. I think this is really the first one to my knowledge that really opens it up and says, oh my gosh, look at the universe within this. Yeah. And what it yeah. really is saying about Mary that mm -hmm. we need to look at. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, it, um, addressed many of the things that I've always had questions about, like the well. Uh, and, you know, I know we're out of time, but uh, the other thing, and we didn't talk about this, but one of the questions I always had was, where is shamanism in the, uh, the ancient tradition? Because it seemed like, you know, everyone all around was engaged in shamanic activity, uh, but yet it seems to be largely absent. Um, and you address that in the book. Uh, so I yeah. appreciated that. Uh, I, I thought that it was uh, just a phenomenal book uh, and just opened up so many uh, avenues. Um, so uh, let me uh, ask you one final question. Sure. And that is, uh, you said that you're working on a book. I wanted to know what's next for you. Um, and then the final question is, uh, how can people find out more about you and your work? Oh, great. Yeah. So what's next? Um, well, while I was writing this book, uh, The Mystery Tradition of Miraculous Conception, I realized that I was actually writing two books and they needed to be parthenogenetically divided <laughs> uh, because it was just going to be too much. And that this one needed to focus on the gospel, the birth of Mary, and the other needed to focus on these other biographies that I was discovering about Mary plus what Sri Kaleshwar, whom I referenced earlier, was saying about her, which is tremendous. And, you know, it just makes you weep. Plus my own engagements with Mother Mary and so forth. And so I will be completing that book shortly. And meanwhile, I've continued to offer courses and experiences with Mother Mary. For example, I have uh, an online on-demand course called the Mother Mary Mystery Traditions, which basically consolidates a lot of the material from this book plus the new book to come. 
And it also allows people to have a lived experience of Mother Mary through various meditations and processes that we go through. And then um, recently I offered the, um, the Mother Mary Love and Empowerment Circle, which, was, which is still available on demand and it's worth listening to because once again, I basically went into an Oracle state and received what kinds of processes Mother Mary wanted to take us through that are really calibrated for this time in which there's so much strife, chaos, division, fear, etc. And she was always helping us to get to that more empowered place that was based in love, which is what we are going to need to get, get us through this crisis over the next few years, especially. So that's available. And I will ongoingly um, soon be offering a monthly call of that nature, a visit with Mother Mary kind of thing where we have an experience. And then I do an Oracle cosmic Q&A with people uh, responding to their questions just from a more open state of consciousness to see you know, what's coming through for us today. So that's some of what's in the immediate future um, in and around various other programs and things that I'm doing at Seven Sisters Mystery School, which is my school that you referenced at the beginning of our conversation. And people can go to sevensistersmysteryschool.com and the seven is written out, S-E-V-E-N. And you can find all of that. You can find my on-demand courses, my new what's coming up, um, many free audios and videos that I have, all the many blog posts that I've offered, how to connect with me to have one-on-one -on -one mentoring because I give you know, reading to people to assist them on their spiritual deepening of uh, their spiritual path and also with sacred career and sacred ministry uh, activities that they're interested in. So there are many, many things that are going on. I'm presently at the tail end of enrolling in Oracle training, the priestess of the dove Oracle training to train women how to open their channel and uh, become these transmitters of divine information, which is really what we all are naturally. I'm just helping sort of, you know, smooth the way for people and uh, put a little oil into it. Okay, very good. I will uh, include a link uh, to the Seven Sisters Mystery School in the show notes and uh, description on YouTube and also provide links for your book so that people can yeah. uh, access them easily. So, yeah, um, you know, Nick, one thing uh, we need to is also the link for the audio version of the book because okay. all right um, there was a there was an argument between Audible and Simon Schuster mm. and it got pulled from Audible and from Amazon but it is available in in through other channels okay. and it is worth getting either alone or as a companion to the written book because I recorded that really with. Um, delivering transmissions in mind. And it's just good to hear this material spoken out loud. Mm -hmm. So I encourage people really to buy the book in one form or, or another or both, because it's very readable as you saw. My first two books are a bit more academic, but this one is accessible by anyone. I mean, I have um, heard from people who are not academics at all, who are not intellectuals at all, and they, 
they find it rich and deep, but very readable. It is very readable. It's very accessible. And uh, I appreciated that about the book as well. Thank you. Well, uh, Marguerite, it's been an absolute delight speaking with you today. Um, uh, Thank you again for your time. You're so uh, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for your really um, profound attention to my book. I know that takes a lot of time on your end. And I really appreciate it so that we can have discussions of this nature. Not all of the interviews I've done have gone so deeply in terms of the, um, the academics of it or the, the textual nature of it. And I think that was important. I think we've woven together some of that material with the esoterics quite nicely. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. I hope so. That's always one of my goals. <laughs> yeah, I think you've succeeded. Oh, well, very good. Well, Marguerite, thank you again. I do appreciate it. You're welcome. And that's a wrap on episode 10 of Rebel Spirit Radio. I have achieved double digits. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive review on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Your reviews really do help. And please consider subscribing. For those of you viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and be sure to subscribe to the channel. Also, make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be notified whenever I upload new content. For the time being, I'll be releasing episodes every other week with the goal of releasing them every week in the near future. I'm also working on creating additional video content for the YouTube channel, including book reviews, educational videos on topics concerning spirituality, the history of religion, and the religious response to the climate crisis. If you would like to support my work in creating free and engaging material on YouTube, please consider making a one-time donation via PayPal. You can find a link in the video description or show notes. Your support makes this podcast possible. I'm Nick Mather. And you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace and flourish in all possible ways.